the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola. And as I edit this show today, it's a very special day. It's a Wayne, Halloween. The veil between the world of the living and the dead is thinner today than any other time of the year. And that's why it's followed in so many traditions by um, festivals like Dia de los Muertos and All Saints Day, followed by All, Sa- um, All Souls Day, if you're in a Catholic tradition, Ziadi um, in Slavic countries like Poland and Belarus, for example. Um, so today I'm doing extra lavish altars and uh, offer- offerings for my, my ancestors. I have an ancestor tree, a giant ash tree in my yard where I hang cluties, the the Scots Gaelic version of prayer flags. Um, They're they're prayer ribbons, really. And that's where I give my prayers and offerings. And so for the last couple days, I've been giving the first bite of my dinner to my ancestors, along with an offering of milk, very traditional, and a prayer from the Carmina Gadelica, a book of incantations from the Scottish Highlands. Uh, Today, I'm making more special traditional foods, and I'm offering the first bite of every meal. And tonight I'll offer some Scotch whiskey because, of course, we're a drinking culture, <laughs> the Scots. Um, I wonder what my neighbors think, hey, when I'm like walking out in my bathrobe in the morning with like a, a cup of tea and scones. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, tonight I'm going to offer a, a, a little dram of Scotch um, And I've got an arrangement with the ancestors of the land I'm on to do so. So, of course, that may not be totally appropriate um, if you live in North America. Um, You know, alcohol, not so great for the ancestors of this land. Um, But I have an arrangement where I can do that on the high holy days of the Wheel of the Seasons where I live. Actually, it's been a while since I've acknowledged the ancestors of the land I'm on on air. So this seems like a perfect and important time to do so. Um, I'm very fortunate to be a longtime visitor on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations. And when I drive around these lands, like within 20 minutes, half an hour, uh, I also pass through the lands of the Senchothan speaking peoples. So that's the Seot, the Tsarlip, the uh, Pakwachin, and the Saanich First Nations. And the place where I grew up uh, about an hour from here, was on the traditional territories of the Hulkaminum-speaking peoples, the Couchin and Malahat First Nations. So I'm very thankful to the ancestors and the original inhabitants of this land for their graciousness to me and my family, and of course the settlers of this region. They're being very patient as we try to reconcile and figure out how to move forward together as neighbors and sport- stewards of this place and this land. Hmm. Today, my guest is the magical, radical Rachel Erickson Rice. I'm so freaking excited about this. Rachel actually converted me to the belief that, yes, actually, you can love a person like Kin, even if you've only met them on Facebook. Um, Somehow we found each other, and we have really honest conversations with each other about super tricky topics like 
whiteness and shame and parenting and partnering and social justice. And pretty much every time our conversation comes around to grief and death. So uh, if that's exciting for you, you'll be excited for this show. I was pretty stoked when uh, I messaged Rachel saying, hey, will you come on my show so I can ask you about your mom? And she said, yes. I connected with Rachel online. She was at home in Portland, Oregon. So Rachel, I'd like to start with Desiree Attaway's question. Uh, what identities do you lead with? Um, artist. Um, woman. I was going to say artist again. <laughs> um, writer, teacher. Um those are what I would lead with. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's segue into the other things. Maybe they'll be revealed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the stuff that you don't lead with. Right. Um, Rachel, I've just known you for a year or so, maybe um, online, and we've become friends, you know? Like mm -hmm. I would say there's a kinship. I really love you. I really mm -hmm. love our connection. We just sort of we we just jam when we when we see each other's on <laughs> Facebook. You're like the only person whose Facebook message I actually respond to right away. High praise. Yeah. So um I I feel like we have a kind of space between us where we can go into some good fruitful places. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me about your mom? Mm, thank you. Um yeah, so my mom was definitely my best friend, definitely sort of the quote, best person that I knew, like in terms of somebody I admired and sort of, I don't know, seemed beyond reproach to me, um, for most of my life. And, uh, she was a hospice nurse um, she was an RN. She was, she was a, she was an RN from <clears throat> when I, you know, was little and, and then became, uh, a nursing director for Orleans Essex VNA and hospice in Northern New England in, uh, in, a, what they call the Northeast kingdom of Vermont. It's kind of the Northern Northeastern corner of the state, um, up near Canada where we used to live. And yeah. And she was, um, really creative and sweet and, um, very conflict averse too. So, you know, if she was the kind of person that, and she was from the Midwest, you know, so she had that real kind of Midwestern ease and, you know, comfort animal kind of <laughs> personality um, and was very positive. So if she was almost kind of militantly positive, like I look back on it now and go, yeah, that might've been an issue. <laughs> um, so if she were to, like, if you were kind of to talk about somebody and she were to say like, oh, I don't know about, her, you'd be like, whoa, hit the deck. Like that person's psychopath or something. Because <laughs> she's really like, she she wouldn't say boo to the goose. Um, she's just a very um, kind of even-tempered and and um, appreciative human. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. What and some of your favorite times with her? Like when you say she was your best friend, mm -hmm. what kind of stuff did you like to do with her? She um, She used to say that she thought of me more as a sister which I thought was really interesting. Like she said that to me, even as a teenager. Um, and I have a little sister who's seven years younger than I am, who is, um, you know, just much more of like, you know, youngest children are, you know, was just much more the baby of the family. And I think my mom kind of, you know, um, I don't know, had different, a different kind of relationship with the two of us. And, um, 
so there was a lot of like, there was a lot of kind of sisterly behavior between us, whether, you know, it was kind of like playing with makeup or like doing hair um, or like listening to, you know, certain music um, or even kind of in playing. She was really, she liked to play. So I had. Really? Like how? I don't, I've never had playful parents. What does I, that look like? <laughs> it's wild. Um, I mean, like she would really, she really would support sort of um, just my imagination and kind of, it's interesting because my dad was sort of the, the painter or the sort of self-described artist of the family, but like his aesthetic really glows. Like it's really, <laughs> it's like really terrible kind of bourgeois, like, you know, very middle, very Thomas Kincaid kind of like, okay. uh, you know, ideas of what, of what, you know, cool art is very sort of um, the Philharmonic playing Pink Floyd being the sort of like, you know, classy kind of <laughs> music or whatever. But my mom was very like, she was very white eyelet, very sort of um, wreaths made out of wheat and like corn husk doll and sort of this very wholesome, but kind of, you know, Midwestern minimalist sort of mm. stuff, which I now I lean really hard into that stuff now, which is funny. Like I can't, I, I compulsively buy white nightgowns and stuff, <laughs> white cotton eyelet nightgowns. <laughs> Mom would, would wear those. Um, but I think my my best memory is just like the feeling of hearing her speak with my ear to her chest. Mm. Um, but she would also like, you know, I would we had like a little creek in one of the houses that we used to live by, and like, you know, she would come down and like I'd have my little dinosaurs and like my little fairies and stuff, and she would like hang out and be like. Mm look at this little piece of moss over here and just live in that kind of wonder with me, which was really special without sort of, she didn't ever really like horn in or like make it about her. She was just like, well, there's this other thing you might want to check out. You know? mm. I felt very supported like that. So how old were you and where were you and what were you doing when you found out that she was dying or died? I'm not sure what the circumstances were there. Well, it's occurring to me right now. It's kind of making the hair go up on my neck that we actually, um, I heard about her, her sort of terminal diagnosis um, right before Halloween. So it might, it might actually, right this time. it might've been today. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah. Because it was really, it was like the day or two days before Halloween. I can't remember now, but it was, you know, it was in 1999. Um, so there was all that Y2K kind of like stuff. And I was having like, I was having like recurring end of the world dreams. Like I was having all this like eschatological angst. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was doing, I was in my final year of college. So I was doing my student teaching. I was doing my practicum at Montpelier high school. Um, where I was supposed to be, you know, kind of getting my student teaching done for teaching middle and middle and high school art classes in public school. And so I was in Montpelier and my parents were in the Northeast Kingdom, which is, you know, about 90 minutes north or so. Um, and I got a phone call that saying that my, from my dad's and he was crying, which is really unusual. Cause I just, I think I saw my dad cry maybe twice in my life. Um, the only other time being when he like talked about his combat in Vietnam. So I knew it was serious, but they also weren't completely clear. It was sort of like, you know, your mom's really sick and we need you to come home. And I, and I had no idea what to do. Cause I, I, I had a boyfriend who was from Mexico at the time 
And I was trying to like, I kept trying to like leave this really backward rural town that I kind of felt trapped in. And I kept like, I kept trying to leave. I tried to leave and like, you know, go to college, but I couldn't really afford it. And I tried to leave and move to New York city. And then I got the phone call and my mom was really sick. Um, so I was, and, and I was like waitressing and putting myself through school. And I was really just trying to like launch my life, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it all, it all came kind of crashing down and I had no idea what to do. Um, there was, I remember at one, I got home and there were, you know, the house was full of people and everybody's freaked out and stuff. Um, and they were like, you know, somebody, I remember my mom's colleague and friend took me by the shoulders and was like, you know, we really need you to be the strong one right now. It's like, Whoa. what? <laughs> yeah. Because why? Like, well, I don't even know like what exactly mm-hmm. is happening. My, my mom had had, um, what, what you would call a routine hysterectomy a couple of years before. And they found this encapsulated tumor and they said they got the seed cells and the stem cells. And like, she was all like, thank God they did the surgery and they found this thing is not no big deal. And for whatever reasons, my, my mom never really kind of followed up or got, you know, more information or got tested, you know, in the subsequent months, everybody just kind of thought that she was free and clear. And so by the time she was, you know, diagnosed at the end of October, it was like, I I didn't know at the time because people didn't really tell me, but she, she, she was gone by December 8th. Mm. So it was like, by the time she got this, this, this cancer diagnosis, um, you know, it was really just a few weeks. Um, until she was gone. And that was like much more, much more quick than, than I think I was prepared for. Wow. What was your mother's state? Like, what was the dying time? Like, was your really, how did that change your relationship in the short time that you had left? Um, I was, I was pretty self-involved as I tend to be, um, (laughs) you know, and so I was, I was a little like in my own world around the whole thing and wasn't, wasn't really tracking um, how serious it was. There was also a sort of, which is so strange because my mom was a hospice nurse, you know? And so you'd think that there would be like more conversation. Um, But it was very like when I got home, you know, she had, um, she had done some, oh gosh, she had done some treatment. And now I can't remember if it was radiation or chemotherapy or both or neither one of them. I think she ended up not doing because it was just so aggressive, but she had, you know, she had lost her hair and she looked ill. She had that look that people get. Um, but it was very, she was like, we're not, you know, we're going to, we're pursuing treatment and we're going to remain positive. And, oh, the militant positivity. Oh, yeah. She and then it was like, do you have, shielding you very much. And, and then do you have any questions? <laughs> that's um, how it was put to me yeah. and I was just like yeah I have some questions like you know but I also I, I didn't feel I don't know what the word is safe isn't the right word but um it really it, it really felt like there was I don't know it felt like they had my parents had a need to kind of keep up appearances and I had learned you know, from, from lifelong living with them that, you know, there was a lot of pretending that happened in my, in my home. And I, and I knew that you kind of had to stick with whatever the official story was Mm. or risk, you know, um, like pulling off the narcissistic mask, which can be a pretty, you know, violent experience. And, Mm. and, and my mom was, uh, you know, colluded with those dynamics a lot. And Mm. so I kind of wanted to just go with the flow and, 
freak out internally inside. <laughs> yeah. Were you with her when she died? I was, I was, I spent, um, I be- spent much of time going back and forth trying to do my student teaching and then, um, go and, and take care of her. And so, yeah, I was doing, I was doing, you know, like just death work stuff, like changing diapers. Um, she pretty rapidly declined, um, so that she, you know, we had a hospital bed at home and, um, and she was, she was fairly unrecognizable, which now I know to be the sort of look that that folks get, you know, when they're at the end of their lives. Um, and I, I was actually, I was actually not present when she actually passed, but we knew that she, that it was her time. And so mm. what we wanted to do was go have me go and get my little sister who was in complete denial about the whole thing. How old was she at the time? 14. 14. Mm. Yeah. And just couldn't even, she couldn't even. Um, so I went to pick her up from school. Um, it was right. And I, I, what, what I did is I wore a beeper and they're like, okay, you know, we, when she passes, we're going to beep you. Um, mm. cause we kind of wanted to get my sister home and sort of have her mm-hmm. be able to be there. So I wasn't there when she passed, but she had been unresponsive for many days, not eating, not drinking, you know? So mm. it was, I really felt like I had been there, you know, from, yeah. to go from, you know, being among us to like, not mm-hmm. being among us. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, what was the grieving process like? How did how did you change? Mm. Um, I think I did a lot of I think I did a fair amount of like spiritual bypassing at the time. Like I really wanted to fast forward into the lesson mm. of and the learning, you know. Um, and I also spent a lot of time, like even while she was while she was dying and and sort of unresponsive, like in the garage getting high with my dad. Like we smoked a lot of weed and, um, and, and, and my dad is still late stage alcoholic. He's been, you know, dying from alcoholism since I was a teenager. I don't know how that's possible. Like why he's still here. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it'd be like cockroaches, Keith Richards and my dad that are going to survive <laughs> nuclear holocaust. <laughs> Not even kidding. Um, it's amazing. He's still walking around, but, um, I, I was pretty checked out. Like I was, I was that's what, that's what being strong or whatever looked like, mm-hmm. you know, it was sort of like, just, you know, um, be like, I thought like, I felt a certain pressure to sort of be wise or, you know, have insight or whatever. And I also had a really, really difficult relationship with my dad. So there was a lot of stuff of like, Oh, my mom set me free. You know, she, I couldn't, I couldn't get away from my dad until she, that was because she was the only reason mm-hmm. that I would, you know, be around my dad was because my mom was awesome. Um, and so I had this whole kind of narrative of, you know, that she was, she was the reason why I was able to like get away from this violent, abusive parent and all this kind of stuff. And it really wasn't until, I don't know, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten years later that I was just like, this is an absolutely devastating, brutal experience. Um, Cause I was just, I was still kind of focused on what I wanted to do in life. I want to move to New York city. I want to be a big deal. You know, um, and all those, all those plans were really kind of thwarted in that, um, I was very kind of resentful about how I didn't get to have my life that I really wanted as a sort of gifted artist kind of person that I was, I was going to have to stay in this like really backwoods kind of sad wintry place 
and, you know, and, and deal with like my abusive dad now being the sole parent of my little sister who I knew was going to need, um, I guess I would call it rescue, which mm-hmm. uh, is ex- exactly what ended up happening. His, his alcoholism really um, accelerated and his mental illness really accelerated. He became much more violent. And um, I got a call from my sister who was hysterical because my dad had dragged her down the stairs, like again, and she had a bunch of marks on her body and we had to call the cops mm-hmm. and my dad was arrested. And he was a pillar of the community. He was on the school board. He was like Dr. Erickson, you know? What? Yeah, he was Whoa. a big deal. And um, was, and he had this like public facing persona of being clean cut or people thought he was like the rebel doctor? No. Like people, how did he pull uh, this up? He, he was, I mean, he has a doctorate in plant physiology. So, you know, <laughs> to be clear, that's so like the kind of thing he would say. It's like, if you called him Dr. Erickson, he'd be like, that's my father. Call me Dr. Erickson. It's like mm-hmm. just a really malignant narcissism. It's pretty intense. But um, yeah, he, he was really like, you know, as, as alcoholic families often are, you know, there's mm-hmm. this double life thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was extremely charismatic and beloved. And then at home, he was an absolute, you know, um, psychopath, you know, really, mm. really dangerous person, violent. Dangerous. That sounds so familiar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, oh gosh. I, yeah. Gee, I have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's, so yeah. what was then the moment when you realized, oh my God, I missed it. Yeah. My mother, that experience, I missed it. Yeah. Oh my God. I haven't dealt with this. Yeah. When did that hit you? Um, it, it, it was, it was way later. Like I, cause I got into a protracted legal custody battle with my dad over my sister and I brought her to New York. And then she was like, ah, oh, this is kind of a scary place that I was living in. Like, you know, pre justified <laughs> Williamsburg and she's backwoods, Vermont was like, F this. and my dad's like, if you move home, I'll buy you a car you know, oh, so she was in foster care and stuff. And we were in this whole big, and, and it was a big deal because, you know, there were a lot, it split our family. There were mm-hmm. people were like, how could you do this to your father? Kind of thing. You know, nobody knew, mm-hmm. nobody knew. So you kind of see my, as you know, me in the last year, and you see this sort of truth telling a whistleblowing type stuff that I do, you can see, you know, how this stuff plays out now. But I basically kind of was in the drama for so many years that it wasn't until I started doing I mean, I, I got a therapist is what mm-hmm. I did. I was just like, I need help. And I started seeing therapists and um, it was hard to find one that I fit real well with. And I didn't live in a big city. So my options were limited. Um, but I was having issues around food, which my mother also did. Um, and I was having, you know, and, and my whole childhood in, into adulthood and even today, there's food, weight, body image stuff. So I was doing a lot of binge eating, a lot of self-medicating with food, which is kind of how we all dealt with our dad growing up, you know? Mm. Um, and I got, I started getting the therapy for it and I started realize I made the connection between the amount of, of, of cannabis that I was smoking and the, the food that I was intaking. And so I was like, Oh, well that's easy. I'll just stop using cannabis. And I found out that I, I found that I couldn't stop. Mm. And I was like, Oh, I didn't realize I was actually like abusing substances. And so then I got into recovery and I started mm. doing 12 step work. Mm. That's when I was like, oh shit, mm. all this ungrieved material. 
you know? Mm. And so I spent a whole bunch of years going to different 12 step groups, like, you know, all kinds. I, I haven't really met one. I don't like, you know, and they're very limited. Like I'm not, you know, necessarily advocating. Um, but there's some good stuff in there for, you know, people like me that need their, need their egos kind of broken down a bit. <laughs> and it was, it was the, it was the modality that was available to me in that time. And in that place, had I been somewhere else, maybe I would have yeah. been something more somatic or whatever. That I'm okay. So now I'm, I'm realizing one of the, the, um, figures that I, I haven't asked you more about and, and that I wonder mm-hmm. where she, he, it was, is mm-hmm. art. Mm-hmm. How was your relationship with your creativity through all of this? Were you making art through the, the sort of lost years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. did it play a part in your recovery? Um, it, I think that it's, it's something that, um, it's something that I just do like, breathing or drinking water. Like I don't have a lot of choice around it. It's not like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm feeling this X, this X certain way. And so I'm going to make this X certain kind of art. It's like, it's really, um, I don't have much choice in the matter. Um, like I, when I was, I came across these, like, um, these, these, um, indigenous American, like, um, American Indian, Native American folks tradition where they bite birch bark. I don't know if you've seen that. I was like, I was like, that's, <laughs> I, was like, I still get that. <laughs> like, I still get, like not necessarily having like art supplies, you know? Right. Um, but like this sort of making that happened. So yeah, I remember doing like a sketch of my mom when she was on her like quote deathbed or whatever, you know? Um, and that being part of, you know, the, the little triptych thing that they put up when we all had to have the wake and stuff. And, um, yeah. And I was drawing and I was, I was, I mean, cause I was at the end of my college career. So I was in a lot of art classes and stuff like that, or the ones that I could afford anyways. But, um, I don't know. I think it was, I think it's a way that I, um, it's a way that I make myself safe. And I think it's always been kind of that way where I'm, when I'm in the sort of creative flow or the, the creative process, it's, um, it's, it's a meditation kind of thing. It really crowds out all the other like platforms mm-hmm. and stuff. Cause I really have to kind of be, be in, you know, in relationship to whatever is going on um, the, in the rendering or the color or whatever. It's interesting you say that because I'm curious how you um, manage the tension between being in intense engagement mm-hmm. while also potentially being in uh, intense dissociation and avoidance and withdrawal from the world. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it makes you safe, but could you mm-hmm. also be using that as a crutch at times oh, sure. or is art different? Okay. Well, I mean, it depends like what's a crutch, you know, um, it, the, the medicine is poison sometimes. I, and, mm-hmm. and I think I probably, I don't know. I was also very much always the kid that could, be sketching. I would compulsively draw. I would compulsively sketch. And I would do that in school. Um, and some teachers would say you can do that. And some teachers would say you could. Mm. And I had a few that were sort of like, look, you get straight A's. I don't give a shit mm. what you got to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, there was a way that it, it occupied some kind of, I don't know, there was some hamster wheel going in my brain that yeah. like when I let that, when I let that kind of roam free, that it, it sort of frees up I don't know, some other space or something. So I was, Mm -hmm. I was able to kind of focus on 
you know, information coming in while I was also sort of doing this other work. And I don't know if there's hemispheric hmm. lateralization stuff happening, or I, I don't actually really understand well, it. But it is true that a lot of people with, say, a more avoidant um, adaptation mm-hmm. it, it, who have... Um, attachment rupture that, that's mm-hmm. caused that mm-hmm. when, when one of the things I found really useful is reminding my husband, no, I have to be doing something like washing the dishes mm-hmm. when we're having this intense conversation, because that uh, my body needs to metabolize yes. the information from my brain. Yes. <laughs> so It has to be doing something in order for it to go in. That's helpful. Otherwise, it's I'm like totally that agitated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I read some, and I don't know if it's true, but I read some apocryphal thing of Mozart, you know, you know, having his wife read to him while he would compose uh-huh. on the piano. So I, I don't, yeah, I don't know that I, I, I think that I'm, I would say I'm neurodivergent. Like if I had to, you know, kind of decide, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I, I, I don't think my, my brain is, is the most typical one. And, and that's also from having lots and lots of psychiatric evaluations done too, and, and a psych file that's quite, quite thick and multiple diagnoses and medications and things over the years too. So over the years, um, have you had, you know, a few different therapists then, or have you been pretty lucky where you've had some consistency? Like, how do you feel about your relationship with therapy and how it played a part in your, you know, your, the development of your psyche? I was really, I was really lucky. I I did get, I, I eventually landed on, um, on a therapist, Anya Hunter, um, who I think is still practicing, um, who had a real strong kind of Buddhist uh, underpinning and some of her, you know, um, cognitive behavioral mm. stuff. Um, it was pretty heavy cognitive behavioral, which now I kind of understand to, you know, sort of be kind of limiting and even sort of problematic. I'm trying to not use that word anymore. Uh, but, <laughs> but I get it. Yeah, there can be real challenges. Yeah. Trauma and that particular modality can, yeah. Yeah, can be very challenging. Yeah, because I can't actually really choose my thoughts <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, I can choose my behaviors. And so, you know, I sort of acceptance and commitment therapy was a better fit for me in the years mm. that um, kind of came after. And, and so, yeah, Anya was awesome. Saw her for many years, but my, like my meds guy was a nightmare. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just the whole biomedical model model is just so it, it just pathologizes mm-hmm. willy nilly. And, um, I would just go in with like a sort of, um, what, what turned out to be a, a reaction to, um, I was having trauma reactions to the public school system because it's so mm. abusive. And I was also re- in a very arch conservative community. And I was, mm. you know, um, who I am, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, and it was also during a time of, you know, a lot of the earliest civil unions, gay rights stuff came out of Vermont. Mm. You know, and I was pretty active in all that. Um mm because we didn't have jack shit for diversity except for, you know, mm. uh, socioeconomic and sort of, you know, sexual identity stuff. But, um, mm. so I was, I was effectively being kind of traumatized by, by, by public school and capitalism and, and was internalizing that as to there's something really broken about me. And so I kind of mm. wander into these offices with like, I'm having, I can't sleep or whatever. And it was like, Oh, well, you know, and I would just walk out with a prescription. Mm. for like whatever um Mm -hmm. so there wasn't a lot of like uh yeah it wasn't a super holistic you know approach and I didn't have money to kind of do more you know um 
other kind of modalities. So, and you, you didn't have a mom who could be like, Oh, yeah. Rach, why don't you just come on over and we'll have some tea and yeah. you tell me all about it. Right. You didn't have a compassionate yeah. witness who yeah. loved you and accepted you. And that makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was really hard. It was, I felt really orphaned and, and I didn't have a dad either because yeah. there was such a massive rupture after, after my mom died. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I felt very um, alone in the world and very sort of like it, the healthcare system is brutal. It's brutal on, on, on poor people. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I was, I was like on, you know, I was definitely on food stamps and stuff, just trying to like, you know, use public assistance to like not be homeless, and, like, mm-hmm. try to function in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I, and, and I was, but I was like, I'm a fighter, you know? And so it's hard now, it's hard to sometimes know like what's an appropriate kind of rage response to what's going on because, you know, um, yeah, it was, I, I really, I really had to, you know, claw my way into, um, safety. Can we bring this to kind of where you are today a little bit? Because, um, I would imagine that 22, 25, 30 year old Rachel, um, would have difficulty believing the domestic circumstances mm-hmm. she finds herself in today. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. can you describe what, what does your life look like today, Rachel Erickson, artist? Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, I always sort of, I guess I should have said I'd never be rich or something because I always said I'd never be a mom. I was like, it's just <laughs> not ever going to happen. Um, and I was also very clear that, you know, uh, like my, my relationship with my dad was so, so fraught that I was like, you know, this shit stops with me. Mm-hmm. I'm not passing this on. I am not. And I saw in how, cause I had to kind of parent my, my younger sister and I saw how easy it was to, to reenact, you know, um, abusive type behaviors, um, and stuff and using force and, um, coercion and all kinds of things that I saw. And it was like, I'm not going to do this, you know, with any children in, in my care. Um, and, but I mean, I was also working with children. Like that's been my, most of my adult life has been working with children. So I really loved, you know, that, um, aspect of, of teaching and kind of learning from them, learning along with them. And, um, a couple of years ago, um, it, I, I was in a long-term relationship with, um, with a musician and, um, I still, to this day, we we're quite close and play music and gigs together and stuff, but we, um, had been together over a decade and we decided that we would explore like polyamory and opening our relationship. And we read some books and we talked to some people that have been doing it long-term and we got some skills and we tried it out and we ended up not staying together as is sometimes the case. I don't want to say it's always the case because I think a lot of people do poly in long-term ways that don't get, you don't hear about it. It's like Yelp, you know, nobody goes on Yelp and like puts a good review. You only, hear about, <laughs> you know, it's like if you Google Prozac reviews, you're going to get all the shit in. Cause you know, if something's going well, you don't, advertise necessarily. Um, but you hear about it when it goes sideways. So I just want to, you know, shout out to all the poly folks that have been long-term and aren't, you know, maybe as well known as the folks where it goes spectacularly bad. Um, not that ours did. Ours, we, we had a very kind of wonderful, um, uncoupling or whatever, and it was all for the best. And I met this other man who has 
two children, I actually kind of cast a spell because I was doing some dating at the time and it was a total nightmare. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I haven't been single since like the last time I was single there, Facebook wasn't invented. Mm. Like I didn't have Mm -hmm. a cell phone, you know? And so to be single at like 12 years later, you know, with the advent of social media and smartphones and Tinder. And like, I had a really good time. I I got laid a lot. It was really fun. Um, But I also really was like, oh my God, what have we done to the men in this world? Like, Mm -hmm. Uh, painful, really painful, a lot of damaged folks um, from the patriarchy and stuff. Um, But I met this man and I I had cast a spell saying like, okay, that's it. I'm done dating. Like, I'm going to be just you know, whatever, like on my own for a bit. And that's all good. And if I do, you know, meet somebody, I want them to have like a couple kids and like daughters. Wow. You actually, you, oh yeah. You I wrote it all that conscious thought. Wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was, well, I wanted them, they either needed to be an artist or, or, or a parent or somebody that had something else going to ground. Yeah. yeah. And did not yeah, expect okay. me to be their world because like I, yeah. I'm actually, I, one of the reasons why my previous relationship was so great was that we both really had primary relationships, not with each other, but with the creative process. Mm, and so mm-hmm. it left me a lot of room to just be that, the sort of compulsive kind of maker and thinker that, that I am without having to perform certain gender roles that really don't fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I was really hoping, and I wrote it all down and I like burned a thing and I called in all the people to help and, you know, on all the levels. And, um, and I went and I was like, and now I'm going to deactivate my online dating profile. And I went to, went in to deactivate it. And I got a little message from this man who was, <laughs> you know, it was like the last message. And he was like, and I had a whole syllabus that you kind of had to read to date me. Like <laughs> I had this like checklist of like, I have read these articles. <laughs> and, you know, like, I was you like, to, like to check that I agreed with these terms and conditions. It was definitely, it was, yeah, it was totally, yeah, it was a TOC um, to date date me. And, and I was like, all right, one last day, I'll go on one more. Like, fine. Um, and that was a couple of years ago. And now we live together with two of uh, two daughters, um, 10 and seven years old. And it blows my freaking mind because I definitely wasn't signing up for that. Like the, we were supposed to be each other's side bitches is how it was supposed to go. <laughs> I had a husband, like we weren't, you know, I mean, I wasn't married to mine, but whatever. It was basically that. Mm -hmm. And um, the center couldn't hold. And so I kind of slid into the spot where, you know, his, his ex-wife was. And, and it's a very strange shape. It's, it's, yeah, I feel contorted. Um, And also, you know, I get to be triggered a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like, I really wanted to avoid doing this work. I really thought it was too hard for me. I was like, that's not for me. I'm not, I'm not capable. I'm actually not good enough or something. Like I'm not the, an evolved enough person mm. um, to be a parent. And that might well, still be true. Yeah. I'm like, um, <laughs> is that a requirement? Because I'm already in and he's 14. But That's I, what I hear from parents that are bio parents. Thank God. One thing though that I have noticed as a parent is um, as you know, as my child hits different age milestones, it opens up a flourishing of remembrance in me of being that age. So my, my, it's like, you're just this constant scab that's recently been picked as you're, you know, observing your child. But I've also found that 
um, as I become the age that my mother was when she was making different decisions, Mm -hmm. um, I feel more enraged. (laughs) Like, what Mm -hmm. the fuck? Like, why didn't you protect me from that? Why didn't, you know, like, what the the fuck were you thinking being with my alcoholic you know, stepdad kind of thing. Like you had a lot of choices. And then I, you know, I kind of come back to my senses and I'm like, does a person really when they're traumatized now, Mm -hmm. like I can see the epigenetics of it. So I'm wondering as you are in this role now of mothering, um, how, how is your relationship with your mother now? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can only imagine that it's, paradoxical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I have, I really relate to that, those sentiments of, of, you know, when I see, when I see the girls in my life kind of, and I, I, you know, like there is that echo chamber of like when I was that age and, um, and, you know, I also like my current partner, as is so often the case is kind of a more healed version of my dad. Mm. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. his oldest daughter is a lot like my dad. Mm -hmm. And so we get to trigger each other in that, in that way. And, and it, I definitely get those, like, why didn't, why didn't my mom protect me? Why didn't she take us away? Why didn't she get divorced or, or whatever? Um, she had the means she, you know, it was, it's, it's still to this day, kind of this confounding sort of Mm -hmm. curiosity. And, um, and even yesterday I was just, God, I was so angry that I didn't, that I just don't get to know her as an adult, that I don't get Mm -hmm. to like, you know, have adult conversations with her. I don't, I wasn't an adult at 22. And maybe she also could have told you now she would have been like, yeah, Rachel, don't do what I did. <laughs> you know, like if, if she was there to talk to you about mothering, she might look back on her mothering and go, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you'd get to have that talk. Like, yeah, yeah that must be really heartbreaking. Yeah. It's, uh, it sucks. And she was just, she was an interesting person. And so I'm just like, man, I really didn't get to know her, you know, um, as a person, I have so many questions and, you know, and as we sort of, as you, as so many of us are kind of looking into doing like ancestry work or, you know, um, when you, when you get into the death trade and you start reading Jenkinson, all this stuff, and there's all this push to kind of, you know, look at your, look at your, your, your way back people. And, um, it's really challenging for me because to have any kind of the people that have answers to some of my questions are people that aren't safe for me to have mm-hmm. contact with. And mm-hmm. so it's this very strange kind of weird decision of like, okay, well, I guess I'll forego, mm-hmm. or, you know, this, this sort of access to some of these, you know, memories and things, or, you know, I'm going to have to put myself, you know, kind mm-hmm. of in harm's way, or I'm going to have to like really, you know, kind of mm-hmm. clamp down and protect my inner child and do all this kind of, you know, um, boundary magic support, you know, to have contact with like, a certain like my, a, a lineage that has been, um, you know, just so deeply harmful for, and for, I'm pretty sure it didn't get invented with my dad, like pretty sure it goes, you know, <laughs> yeah. A and couple so now you're in the death trade in the sense, as Jenkinson says, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the sense that you are a hospice volunteer, you're doing end of life care, just mm-hmm. like your mom. Yes. And I actually really like this kind of weird, but I kind of enjoyed, I enjoyed, I don't know if the joy is is quite right, but I, I really, um, appreciated the, the depth of, of feeling that kind of went when my mom was really sick and when she was dying. And, and I really observed how there were such myriad reactions and how some people just 
really pushed for business as usual. And some people really let themselves fall apart. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that to my surprise, I was able to kind of be with all of that without kind of making anybody wrong about it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I started, I remember reading Stephen Levine's Who Dies, which is one of my mom's, you know, favorite books, as I recall. Um, you know, this was probably a good, let's say seven, eight years after she died. And I was like, this would actually be some work that I would do. And I remember mm-hmm. telling my partner at the time, like, I kind of want to do some end of life care for folks. And then like, it was like a month later that my partner's mom got really sick and ended up dying in our home. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, I guess Okay. <laughs> You're super yeah, magic. It's scary. Yeah. No, it's yeah. been like that. If they've had enough of that kind of experience in my life that I'm like, okay, it actually does matter how you sort of orient yourself, you know, mm-hmm. um, and what you call in and what you put your attention on and all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so we took care of Melda. Um, and then I did a little bit of end of life care for a friend's mom who was also um, you know, terminally ill and was dying at home. And I would just come and just kind of hang out and, you know, read the New York times and whatever. Um, but I really found like there, that liminal space, those, those, those places of edge, you know, out, out on the perimeter, like that's where I, I'm so comfortable there. I'm not in the middle being safe. Like I'm way, way on the razor's edge and people that hang out on the razor's edge, whether they're, you know, shamanic practitioners or, or heroin addicts, like people that are like getting out there. Those are kind of my people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really, you know, for better or worse sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and who supports you out there? That's, that's a really good question. Um, I, I have, I have some people in my life that are, that are really grounded and um, like my current partner is, is, you know, um, He's quite, he just, he can look at things in, in a way that's, he can see more conventional approaches and their merits, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of can see where I'm like pushing an edge that doesn't actually really need to be pushed. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, my current partner is somebody that's like, you know, really pretty, pretty grounded and, um, does not have, does not have like, I I don't know if I want to say he doesn't have trauma, but doesn't have the kind of clinical aggressive childhood Mm. trauma with, with associated diagnoses like complex PTSD and stuff that I have. So he's able to kind of be like, Hey, actually this isn't an emergency. (laughs) (laughs) That's so lovely. (laughs) What a wonderful quality. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have a, I have a dear friend who's a coach and, you know, I, I just, I have some people that are able to like, that will actually stand up to me that will actually be like, Hey, you're wrong about this. Mm -hmm. You know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you still have your art, which is what I find amazing about following you on um, Instagram and Facebook is the, the vastness of your skill. Like you just have such a broad, there's not a piece where you can go, Oh, that's Rachel, except Mm -hmm. every piece you can go, Oh, that's Rachel. You know, like you don't have one style. Yeah. It's confounding. It's, it, it's so you're chameleonic, you can Mm -hmm. style flex, but Mm -hmm. it's almost like, um, yeah, I mean, from hearing what you're telling me now though, right. It's like, you can see that this is an artist who, here's my interpretation. Would you like me to just give you a back the napkin interpretation? I I welcome the reflection. (laughs) Clue me in because I don't know. Yeah, no, but this is obviously a person who's had to become a very astute 
uh, learner about human nature mm -hmm. and what um, touches people. It's like, you know, people's buttons, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the way you, you can speak their language mm -hmm. to them. And so that ability to capture what other people will naturally be able to project themselves into and what, what kind of opens up their special places you know that mm -hmm. that kind of the thing the 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 feeling of yearning or desire or appreciation mm -hmm. you can read the audience so well and this is one of the skills i think that you learn as a child of an alcoholic mm -hmm. is the ability to um, learn the many many different languages because <laughs> it's like which version of me do you need me to be so that i can keep either myself or right. everyone else safe or right. so that i can just manage you in this particular mood or expression right. or this particular rant you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. and so it's uh, you know other people would more succinctly just call this emotional intelligence but i think it's an aesthetic i think it's that you, you understand the aesthetic of many different um, states of being mm -hmm. and you you manage to speak the language back out into the void right like wow. this is a, a language that people understand who are in this state of being and wow. I, I I just love it I love how varied it is it's just so beautiful that's an so, amazing reflection thank you oh, it welcome. gets in the way of me monetizing my work yeah yeah I'm not I, like and I made dream like TBH, like I made dream catchers for a bunch of years and I was that girl, right? You know, that was kind of my deal. Um, and to, yeah, I don't really have beyond that. I don't have sort of, like you said, a signature thing. Although if you look at a piece, you can be like, oh yeah, it's, you know, oh, yeah. made that. Totally. Um, but yeah. it's definitely hard for me to choose. I really, I get very, um, yeah, I get really cagey when I sort of have to think about you know, drilling down like niche marketing and all that kind of stuff. I really like, I bristle. It feels very, it feels very, and, and part of it is that I have, I think I, I have used psychedelic medicine. Like I've used a lot of plant medicine to, you know, kind of um, go out to that periphery and, you know, traverse some of those like liminal realms with, um, with, with plant medicine, psychedelic support. And so it feels very kind of uh, flat and, and mm -hmm. opaque or like one dimensional or something to me to sort of have to, you know, pick a style or pick a medium. I'm just, I just really like being slutty. I, I think it's valuable. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you don't pick. Um, Thank you. So as we're, we're winding up here, I, I'm very curious. I mean, I know that you are um, unabashedly yourself and sometimes that might be that might cause friction but that's different you know being a truth speaker or an accountability holder or a steward of uh you know what the what what my scottish ancestors would say the fitness of things mm -hmm. the way things ought to be right yeah. mm -hmm. it's like no this isn't this isn't a good way of being mm -hmm. um, but that's different from rage mm -hmm. and i'm very curious how do you express or cope with the feeling of rage? Mm. Well, I, I wonder, I think about my mom sometimes. Um, and I wonder if, if, you know, if she had a lot of unprocessed rage and mm. how toxic that might've been for her system, not because you invite, you know, through law of attraction, this kind of illness or any sort of bullshit supremacist ideology like that, but more just like your body's really stressed out mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. you know, ungrieved an un, un, you know, acknowledged or unprocessed rage. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of been 
that's always kind of been in the back of my mind. Like, don't, don't, my, my mother would, you know, squash all of that down and just pile a bunch of like circus peanuts and Dr. Pepper on top of it. Like that's how my mom dealt with the things. Um, and so I have to, like, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I have some accountability around, around the, the, the things that I go to when I'm in, you know, deep rage. Um, and, and it's just, it's everything from, from just like not, not going for the, the Dr. Pepper and all the, but sometimes I do, you know, mm-hmm. but I have like, I have a health coach and I text her, like, I'm like, Here, I'm going to, I'm going to use this substance or whatever. Um, there are occasions that I go and like buy $1 worth of tobacco at the mm-hmm. finest tobacco that you can get. Um, you know, <laughs> and, but I get, I get a very small amount of it and then use that until I'm actually sick and done. You know, mm. and I'm like, that's not the healthiest. Like, these are some of the things that that I do. But you know, the most important thing that I do is to not do anything. If mm. I'm really deep in rage, like it's it's a feeling. Um, it's like the weather, and it'll pass. Like I know it'll pass. Like it, 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 in terms of the actual, just when my body, my physical nervous system is just absolutely on fire, um, mm. then that's a very strong signal that I actually need to slow way down. And mm. don't, don't hit send on the email, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't hit publish. Um, don't, don't raise my voice. There's, there's a sort of like, you know, I've done enough kind of therapy and healing modality stuff where I'm like, I, I work, I work some 12 steps on it sometimes if I need to. And it's like, what's my part, you know, in this, where can I clean up my side of the street? Where, where, where did I, you know, maybe need to kind of look at my own stuff? Mm. Uh, and, and, and mostly just like restraint. Mm. restraint um it, because in 24 hours i'm gonna be pissed about something else probably but you know it, it might fade and i might have a, a bit more of a cogent you know even even handed kind of response to it because i can be really like if i'm in the throes of it it's not it's not time to to act but i'll I'm, it, sometimes rage just happens from confusion and I just need help making some decisions, you know, mm. um, what do I do? You know? So like I talk to people that are way smarter than I am. That's really important. <laughs> people like you, people like my health coach, like whoever, you know, um, or through the I Ching, like go, you know, really sit and just like mm. be on fire. Um, mm. yeah, or I write, you know, I definitely use writing, like, thank God for writing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm glad that the actions that you're taking are the kind that are, um, it sounds like they're more gentle on yourself than they might've been Mm -hmm. past. Very much. Happy for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's okay. Like I just, I also don't, I don't know. Um, I, I can get, I can reinforce a narrative of brokenness around the rage stuff. Mm. Um, but I've kind of understand that, you know, come to understand that this is, this is a pretty natural response to a pretty like messed up world that, that Mm -hmm. sensitive, you know, traumatized person has to navigate. And just to know that like the, the, what it takes to be successful requires such an extreme extraction of emotional and intellectual labor for me and even physical, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that rage is actually a really appropriate response. Mm -hmm. Totally understandable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and in many ways I think a very healthy one yeah I I, I get enraged when people are not enraged yeah yeah <laughs> you know, I mean I don't have to be able to I don't have to see a person's rage you don't have to be like busting shit up all the time yeah. but 
you know, show me you care. Right. So thank you very much, Rachel, for coming on the show and showing us all how much you care through your art and through your activism and your way of being in the world. Thank you very much for sharing it. Well, thanks for letting me honor my, my mom and the, the, the beauty that can come in death and, and doing, and doing death work and death is life. You know, we're all here because things died and Mm -hmm. that's who we are. So I feel much more kind of plugged into my medicine, you know, talking about this stuff and doing this work than I ever have before. So I, I, mm. I appreciate the opportunity to tell sort of a little bit more of my backstory about how I got here. I'm grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Carmen. Well, what more is there to say other than, isn't she lovely? I, I find her honesty so inspiring and what a resilient person. I mean, I suspected, but didn't, didn't know the details of um, the road she's walked, but it doesn't surprise me that um, Rachel has managed to turn it into such beauty. She's just, she's a channel for something magical and radical. You should really go check out her art on her website, rachelrice.com, and you'll find links to her Etsy shop and her Society6 store. I do own a Rachel Rice original, and actually I'm super stoked because we're collaborating on something that she's going to release, I think, around Christmas time, but there's a special version of it coming for um, uh, students of the Numinous School um, who are getting care packages in January. Anyway, I digress. Um, Society6, I would like my husband to know that I have my eye on some of the watercolor agate pieces in the Society6 shop for Christmas, specifically the agate number one rug. I'd like to display that in my office as a wall hanging. I think it would look very nice in the background when I'm doing Skype sessions with clients. (laughs) Thanks so much to Rachel. And uh, let's do a shout out today to the listeners in Oregon. I I mean, I can see your faces in my mind, at least a half a dozen of you that I know listen very regularly. I I haven't looked at the stats in months, 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 so I don't know how many, but I know there's some of you there that are very loyal listeners, and I totally appreciate it. And um, thank you. Thank you so much for your continued support and being in my world. Finally, just a heads up that the deadline to place your deposit to come on Quest with me next year is April 15th, 2018. Um, Get all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.